This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is brought to you by Triple Threat Sports, Marishka's in Crest Hill, Dr. Squatch Soap Company, and by Fry the Coop. Here are your hosts, NBC Chicago's James Naveau and 670 The Scores hockey guy, Jay Zawoski. Let's drop the puck. Welcome in, friends, to this special edition of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. I feel like I always say that, but today is actually special. My name is James Naveau from NBC5 Chicago, and with me, of course, as always, is the one and only Jay Zawoski of 670 The Score and the I'm Fat Podcast. Jay, I know we keep saying like that episodes of this show are special, but I do indeed feel like today's is special because today, when we're recording this, is a very important anniversary in Blackhawks history. What happened on June 9th, Jay? I'm kind of drawing a blank here. Today is the 10-year anniversary of the 2010 Blackhawks Stanley Cup victory over the Philadelphia Flyers, the lost puck game, I guess you could call it. Uh, a huge moment in Chicago sports history, obviously a huge moment in Blackhawks history, and we're going to share our memories of that night and that playoff run with you on this podcast. First, I want to tell you how to get in touch with us. Very easy to do. Follow us on Twitter at MadhousePod. The email is MadhousePod at gmail.com. You can go to our website, which I never promote but should, MadhousePod.com. There you can link to all of our sponsors. You can find out about James and I. We also have a Threadless shop, so you can order some Madhouse Podcast swag on there. And, of course, every episode is available on the website as well. We're also on Facebook at Madhouse Hockey CHI. So, yeah, 10 years ago. And before we get into all the cool stuff that happened that night, the Stanley Cup win, I think James and I both can give a little context as to how things built up that year, early that year, and even before that season, as like the Blackhawks mania kind of happened overnight. James, I know you were, you're a lot younger than me. Um, and I know you were a hockey fan, you know, like before the Hawks got really, really good. But I was a Hawks fan for a significantly long time before they got good. I was going to the games when they were terrible, when it was Joseph Marha and Ryan Vandebush and bums like that skating around for the Blackhawks. And when Taves and Kane got drafted and Brian Campbell was signed and Rocky Wirtz, and I'm sorry, and Bill Wirtz died, 
everything seemingly changed overnight. And uh, it, it's really, there's so much to get into. It's it's kind of find, hard to find a place to start. But where, where were you, James? Let's refresh. Refresh my memory, even. Where were you in your Blackhawks fandom in 2010? So my route to being a Blackhawks fan was pretty uh, circuitous and very much a hot and cold proposition for a while, at least in the early stages of my life, because my family was huge into baseball. Like I've always been just like the biggest Cubs fan and like the history of earth has always been a huge thing. And then obviously the nineties bulls really dominated a lot of, you know, sports fandom for me at least. But in the early nineties, I did start to get into hockey and it really ended up being kind of, and I, this is weird to say because like so pilloried for it now, but I really got into hockey, I think, because ESPN was airing games. And so I would flip on games on my TV in my room and I would watch the Buffalo Sabres or the Pittsburgh Penguins and their Robo Penguin jerseys or whatever. And I got <laughs> yes. big time into the sport watching games on ESPN. And I obviously started following the Blackhawks, although I had to, you know, this is the old timer part of me. I had to listen to a lot of games on radio because my family wasn't shelling out money to pay for anything. So I watched maybe like a handful of Blackhawk games a year, but in, you know, obviously knew about guys like Jeremy Roenick and Chris Chelios and Tony Amante and Eric Daze and all those guys. But after Jeremy Roenick got traded and then after Chris Chelios was dealt, I just kind of went back into a little bit of a cold spell with the Blackhawks. I feel like I kind of went that way with the Bulls as well after the dynasty ended. And then after the lockout ended, it was, so it was like 05, 06, I kind of started to pick back up on it. I started actually going to a few games because I was old enough to obviously drive myself to Chicago and get up there, was able to, you know, see guys like, you know, Martin Lapointe and Radim Verbata, who was one of my first, like in the new wave of my Blackhawk fandom, one of the first guys that I like really appreciated watching. And then of course, you know, your Mark Bells and Kyle Calders and all those guys. And then as I, my fandom obviously started to kind of increase as they drafted Jonathan Taves after uh, old man Wirtz died when they drafted Patrick Kane. And I really, I think I went to probably nine or 10 Blackhawk games the first season that Kane and Taves were with the team. And that was really kind of the jumping off point. And then it was then that I had started to like write a little bit about uh, sports for like Bleacher Report when it was still really new and you could just like very do bloggy. kind of community. Yeah, very <laughs> bloggy. And so I was like writing about college football for them. And then I kind of like gone off on a tangent and written about the Atlanta Thrashers for a little while. Um, and then I got a, I scored the spot covering the Blackhawks and then I ended up doing a bunch of Blackhawk coverage by the time 2010 rolled around I was writing about the Blackhawks for a couple different blogs I used to run a blog called paint it Blackhawks I wrote for the hockey writers just like I was all over the place and this was all like side gig stuff so like it wasn't like this was like my career and watching the kind of evolution of this thing I wasn't getting paid to do it it was just something fun to do and just kind of honing my skills as a writer and just kind of you know all the other life stuff was kind of you know there in the background as I tried to figure out what I wanted to do for a career and stuff and just this like 
amazing assemblage of talent. Like they all came together that season and getting to kind of like cover it as like a fan and write about it, I think like made me kind of remember some of the facts and factoids just like that little bit better because like, you know, you write something down, you remember it or whatever. So like I have that awesome benefit of getting to go through that entire experience of not only getting to root for the Blackhawks to win the Stanley Cup for the first time in a half century, but I also got to write extensively about it and to really kind of like get my feet wet in terms of what it was like to cover playoff hockey and to kind of analyze it too. So I really did, uh, as that kind of all went on, I got the best of both worlds and kind of that evolution. Yeah, I, I had that experience too with the fandom slash media type and um, like I said, I'd been going to Hawks games for a long time. I started working at 670 The Score as an intern in uh, 1999. My first official shift was January 1st, 2001. That was my first paid shift. Um, so I had always sort of been like the lone hockey guy at the station. And 2001 is when the Blackhawks drafted Tuomo Rutu, and I was singing the praises of him, saying this guy's going to be the next star. He's going to bring the Hawks out of this slumber, whatever. And then Keith and Seabrook got drafted. Corey Crawford got drafted. And the signs of a, of a, an upswing were there, but it, they were clearly missing that, and they ended up getting two of them, that revolutionary talent that they got when they got Taves and Kane. So, interesting, in 2009, that's when, so the 8 09 season is when the Hawks started to get pretty good they were that's a team that obviously they went to the conference final um and that's when the hawks mania like that's when the first spark flew right and i did a bar event with joel quenville at cork and carry and that was very well attended but nothing like it would have been if it was in 2011 or 2012 right there would have been a thousand people there there may be 70 people there to see joel quenville um then i started doing bar events the cup year with adam burrish and starting in the season, so like October, November, we would go out to these bars. I remember one night specifically, we went to the Cubby Bear uh, in Wrigleyville, right across the street from Wrigley, like uh, Kitty Corner to the Marquee. And it's me, and it's a Blackhawks player, and there were five or six people there. Th that's it. Like, that was the entire room. So Adam and I are up on a stage with lights on. We got microphones. It's like, what are we doing? Like, let's just go down and talk to these people. So we'd go grab a table and just sit around and talk. That's how we did it. Um, and then as the season was going on and the Hawks were kicking ass and getting really good, you know, you saw that you, these crowds would grow and grow and grow to the point where they would always sort of shut it down early in the spring. So like end of February, early March, they would try to put the kibosh on these things as the playoffs started to get more in focus. But by the time that time came, we were talking like it was like being out with the Beatles when it was Burrish or Troy Brower or whoever it was. It was wall to wall people at those events. And it happened over the course of what, three or four months. Yep. The way the bandwagon for the Blackhawks took off was so incredible. And at the time, there weren't a lot of great Chicago sports teams. You know, it, it's so I think it, the timing was right for the Hawks to take control right there. And Dan Bernstein mentioned it on a score today when him and I were talking. It was just people were ready for the party. They were ready to feel good about the Hawks. They were the cool, hip team with the good-looking young guys playing for them. Um, and everyone was happy to jump on that bandwagon. And it happened so unbelievably fast. That's what I'll remember more than anything from that season was 
you know, me coming, you know, two years earlier at the empty United Center now to being in a wall-to-wall mosh pit packed bar with a, you know, third line, fourth line Blackhawks player to see it happen that fast was incredible. Yeah, it definitely shows the uh, kind of rap, the rabid, rabid nature, I guess. I was trying to come up with a cool word, but I was just like, you know what? It's just rabid. You got it's, it. <laughs> I like that word. It's a good word. It's good beer, yeah, it's too. Just, it, a ra- absolutely. Just like a rabid like following for any sports team in this city. And I obviously got to witness that a lot with my friends who I kind of like dragged on the journey along with me, like especially <laughs> the – the 0708 season was probably more just like me going to games with my then fiance or then girlfriend, God, and then yeah. fiance. And then after that, like after that season, I started like dragging friends to the United Center and being like, look, you guys need to like get in on this. You need to pay attention to this team because they have the potential to be something special. They just, like you said, were loaded with so much like quality, young talent, a lot of very marketable guys, which obviously, you know, boded well for a guy like John McDonough to try to work with as he was getting these guys on TV, you know, ensuring that all games would be televised and then just getting them out in the community as much as possible. And I think to me, the one thing that really kind of like sells just how massive a change this was in terms of the Blackhawks place in the sports consciousness of Chicago, it can be illustrated really well. Hot quarters in back-to-back seasons had autograph events with two players at them, right? Mm -hmm. The first one was Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane. Pretty good line for that. I stood in line for that for quite a while, got both their (laughs) autographs. The next year, when the Hawks had started to get good and really started to like kind of get like the nas- the attention of the city, the lines were even longer, and the players were Brian Campbell and Christopher Steed. Yeah, like that. That that just illustrates it to me that they had to bring out like the absolute biggest of guns for these autograph signings, and then they didn't have to do that anymore, and they still packed them into the rafters of. The old hot quarters on Michigan <laughs> Avenue. Yeah, now, so, known, now known as the Blackhawk Store. Yeah, r- super original name, by yeah, the way. But hot quarters <laughs> was such a good name. I don't know why they didn't stick with that. But that was uh, that's that was foolish on their part. Yeah, like but, I think they easily could have kept that branding because it just it makes sense. Yeah, and it sounds cool. Well, I here's don't know, a, but, here's another illustration of what you're talking about. Taves's rookie year, right across the street from the Blackhawk Store, there's a Chipotle. On Michigan Avenue, it's right there. It's on the other side of Michigan Avenue. And I was working at the score that was at NBC Tower, so I stopped to get some lunch. I think it was, yeah, it was when I was working nights. So it was like a late lunch, early dinner. And I'm in there, and there's Jonathan Taves just, you know, filling up his drink at Chipotle, uh, grabbing his straws, like getting ready to walk out. I go, hey, uh, it was that day he had been announced as like Rookie of the Week or something. I'm like, hey, it was Rookie of the Month. I'm like, hey, Jonathan, congrats on the honor. And he was like, you know about that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I do know about Like, I'm the guy that knows about that. Jonathan Taves, who just been named Rookie of the Month, is alone in Chipotle, and I'm the only person in the store that knew who he was. I mean, that's that was two years before he's holding the Stanley Cup, or three years before he was holding the Stanley Cup. Yeah. It's just unreal to think how far they came. And, you know, I, I don't think it's it's just the Blackhawks because even when I did some of these with Jake Arietta too, during his um, Cy Young year, I did a bunch of bar events with Jake Arietta, and some of those were empty, too, because 
teams or fans didn't realize that the that those Cubs teams were good yet. You know, so it's interesting. But man, to see the way how they've come now, and just talking about you know the players in general, Jonathan Taves from then to now as a person, as a citizen, as a human being, it's night and day. It, it's just it's been such an incredible run. But we should talk about some of the hockey as well. Um, first, we want to tell you about our friends at Triple Threat Sports. We've been telling you uh, for weeks now they're churning out those masks. If you need masks, hit them up. Chris at TripleThreatSports.com, 708-478-6090. You can get one. You can get up to 10000 You can get a plane. You can get a logo on it. Whatever you're looking for, Triple Threat Sports has it for you. Mask-wise, we're still going to need masks for a long time, even into Phase 4. We're going to need to be wearing masks at work. It, it, whatever we go to, you're going to need them. So hit up uh, Triple Threat Sports, triplethreatsports.com, and get some masks. Triple Threat Sports, if you need a mask, they can make it. So the other thing I want to bring up, James, and I was asked this question today. A lot of people talk about the Cubs signing of John Lester as the signifier of an arrival, right? Like this means that the, the Cubs mean business. They went and signed this guy. And now we know they're serious. They're they're doing everything they can to win. It was presented to me as Marion Hosa being that signing for the Blackhawks. That happened the summer before the 2010 Cup, so July of 2009. I think that it was more Brian Campbell the summer prior, the summer of 08, when he was the unquestioned top available free agent. The Hawks went out and paid a ton of money for him and got him. That, to me, was the signifier of, okay, look, this team's not screwing around. They're going to get the top free agent, and they did it two years in a row with Campbell and with Hosa. Well, I mean, think about it. Like, how many guys at the Hawks, like, I'm sure, had, like, tried to sign over the years and couldn't get or signed to contracts when they were definitely past their prime? Like, yeah. this was the first time that you got guys who were still – entering their prime to come and play for you. And, yeah, they did have to give Marion Hossa a 12-year contract. Yeah, they had to give Brian Campbell, what, it was seven or eight years? I forget mm-hmm. which. And, by the way, I will not take this complete dismissal of the significance of them signing Cristobal Huey. How dare you, sir? Well, hey, at the time, that was huge, too, though, because everyone thought that he was going to be the franchise goalie for a long time. He just started to suck suddenly. Didn't they do like a like introductory thing for both of them at the United Center? I know they did one with Marion Hose. Uh, it was Hose and Kapetsky, and they had like okay. a bunch of kids in the audience from Chicago schools in the stands. Right. I don't remember with the Campbell one as any different from your typical, but I could just I might just have forgotten. I just think that was wild that they like did that for a free agent signing. Just were like, yeah, let's just have this like big, massive photo op. Like it was so an- antithetical to what the Blackhawks have been doing for so many years. Like for a while, they were like kind of content to toil in obscurity, and then all of a sudden, they were like, hey, come on out, come see us. We're we're, we're going to be relevant again. But I will, I do really, I like the fact that you brought up Brian Campbell because I do think that his contributions to that team do kind of get lost in the shuffle and I'm going to go a step further Jay I have a hot take are you ready for this Uh oh is it a Cholula hot take this it's close I I'm just going to go ahead and say it I don't think the Blackhawks would have made the playoffs in the 2010-11 season without Brian Campbell there I said it I mean I'm just gonna I'm throwing that out there man they they barely got into the playoffs they were the eighth seed that year they got in 
Nicholas Jalmerson, I thought that season for him, from what I'm recalling, was a very rough season for Nick Jalmerson. Brian Campbell, who hadn't been one of the guys traded when they had to trade all those guys away to get under the salary cap, he stepped up in such a big way that season. And even with all the expectations that were heaped on him because of the contract and all that stuff, I thought Brian Campbell was a really, really strong player for that team. And I really do have to ask whether or not they would have made the playoffs without him. And I just, I don't think they would have. They were a very fringe team that season. That was a rough year for the Blackhawks. I just looked up his stats. He did only have 27 points. But he was a plus 28 plus minus on a team that really kind of suffered. He also got some Norris love that season. So I'm just saying, Brian Campbell really stepped things up for the Blackhawks when they needed him to that year. Well, and, and this is, we talk about this a lot with Brent Seabrook. And I think a lot of people held Brian Campbell's contract against him, especially after the 2010 Cup when all those guys had to go, Ladd and Bufflin and on and on and on, all the people that had to leave. Because of, and to be honest, Dale Talon's paperwork error, that was part of it too. But having all those guys go because you had Brian Campbell on the roster, people thought he wasn't worth it. People looked at Bufflin and Ladd as maybe, maybe not Ladd, but Bufflin is a better player than Campbell, and maybe they were right. But Brian Campbell did everything he was supposed to do when he was signed here. You brought him in to be an offense-first, speed, offensive-generating defenseman, and he delivered that completely. That's exactly what you wanted from him. So I think people in their minds were sort of blinded to the contract because of the contract to not see what he was contributing on the ice. Go back and watch some of those playoff games from 2010, 2011, and watch how important Brian Campbell is to what the Hawks are doing. It's incredible. His his value to the Hawks is huge. And I was I was sort of guilty of that too, like, ugh. You know, he's good, but he's not worth what he's getting paid and blah, blah, blah. Look, he did what you paid him to do, and uh, that team was a lot better when he was part of it. And um, I, I, it, that's one sucky part about a hard cap, one of the many sucky parts about having a hard cap league is guys get dismissed or undervalued because of the impact of their contracts. And that's not fair. Anyone would have signed the deal Brian Campbell signed. Anyone would have signed the deal Brent Seabrook signed. Um, but especially with Brian Campbell, that guy was incredibly valuable in his first run in Chicago. And, uh, I, I think going back and looking at it with fresh eyes on it kind of reminds you of that. And, and speaking mm-hmm. of that, how damn deep the 2010 team was. It's incredible. You look at that roster, every player's a name, you know, with the, I'm looking at the roster now. With the exception of Colin Frazier and maybe Ben Eager and Cam Barker, if you like went to people on the street and said, what does Chris Versteeg do? Most people in Chicago would know he's a hockey player, right? Nicholas Jalmerson, Dave Boland. Those are those are household names in this town because they won cups, of course. But you're looking at, at a team that ro- rolled four lines and three pairs every night. And that's why they were the best team. That's why they went on to win three more cups in five years and or two more cups in the next uh, four years. But man, that the depth on those teams is something that I think we took for granted because we were so you know, overwhelmed by the talent of Taves and Kane and Hosa and Keith that we weren't noticing how damn good 
everybody on that team was. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Patrick Kane that season had 88 points, was obviously just this, like, incredibly dynamic scorer. But but then you, like, start to look down the list, and Duncan Keith had 69 points that season. That was a nice (laughs) nice season for him. Very nice season. By the way, happy nice day also. Today's 6-9. So, (laughs) Um, and then Jonathan Taves had 68 points. Patrick Sharp had 66. Marion Hosa only played 57 games, still had 51 points. Like, you just go down this list, and they had at least, at least eight guys on that team that were averaging a half a point a game or better. Like, that is so difficult to defend especially if you're getting production from both your forwards and your defensemen like Brian Campbell had 38 points that season Brent Seabrook had 30 like you just like go up and down this list and you just see all of these different guys who no matter what position they were coming from they were moving the puck up the ice they were possessing it like crazy and they were even if you got shots on like shot attempts a lot of them were still being blocked. Like, they had guys who could literally do anything. They had defensive guys who could stop shots and get the puck out quickly. They had offensive-minded defensemen who could pinch in. They just – they had every single piece that you need to have a winning hockey team, and they just – they rolled, man, and they were such a fun team to watch. And I know I, – I believe I've said this in the past that I think the 2013 team might have been slightly more talented than this bunch. Yeah. But just – you look up and down this this roster and good lord they were deep it's so insane to think that they were able to get that collection of talent together and it's a good thing they won the cup since they did end up having to kind of blow the whole thing up after the season was over yeah you're right about that all right when we come back we're going to talk about some of the actual games played in 2010 some really memorable ones and they weren't just in the stanley cup final first want to tell you about our newest partner on the podcast dr squatch soap company I had horrible skin forever. My hands would crack and bleed randomly. It wasn't just in the winter. It was in the summer, too, and I'd had enough. I stumbled across Dr. Squatch's Facebook ad. I saw, I'm sorry, their Instagram ad. I saw the the bars of soap. They call them thick bricks with two Cs, and I said, all right, I'm going to check this out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blind invest in something that I've never experienced before, that I've never seen before or held before because I like the ad, I like the message, and I got the product. And I was blown away. In the course of three days, my hands were almost fully recovered. There's no cracking. There's no bleeding anymore. My hands are smooth. My hands are soft. I used to not be able to pick up socks or towels without the fabric getting stuck to my fingers. That's how dry my hands were. Well, Dr. Squatch fixed all of that. For our listeners, go to drsquatch.com, put $20 worth of products in your cart, and enter promo code MADHOUSE, and you will save and you will help the podcast. Get yourself some bars of soap, get yourself the soap saver. They've got a great hair care kit as well. My favorite scent of the soap so far is the pine tar. It lasts forever. It smells like a forest. It's got exfoliating oatmeal in it. I absolutely love it. It's so a go to drsquatch.com. Use promo code madhouse to save on your order. Stock up. Father's Day is coming up. You're going to want to get a great gift for your dad. Dr. Squatch is a place to go. Head to the page, drsquatch.com. In the top right, you'll see the Squatch quiz. Take that, fill it out, what you're looking for in terms of products, and they will match you with the products you need and you want. Again, drsquatch.com. Use promo code MADHOUSE. We'll be right back with more on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. With Metro by T-Mobile, your hard-earned money goes further. 
This tax season, there's zero fees to switch. Enjoy Metro's lowest price. Just 25 bucks a line for four lines. Plus, get four free Samsung Galaxy phones when you switch. Now that's the best deal in wireless. Metro by T-Mobile. Empowering you to rule your day. All lines lose promo rate if any deactivates. No fees on select phones. Limit one per line with eligible port. Exclude sales tax. Limited time offer. Additional terms apply. See Metro by T-Mobile.com. Today on News 4 at 4. It's one of the most anticipated lists of the year. Consumer Reports top new vehicle picks. Susan Hogan is working for you, showing you the safest, most reliable cars for your money. Today at 4 p.m. on NBC4. Many kids in our area are back to in-person learning, and we are helping you keep them safe in the classroom. We're working for you. Small steps you can take at home to protect them at school and expert advice to ease anxiety for you and the kids. This week on News 4 Today on NBC4. Welcome back into the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. My name is Jay Zawoski, James Neville, my partner out there in beautiful Bourbon A. We are awaiting bad weather here, so hopefully we get this done uh, before our uh, studio literally blows away. Want to tell you about our friends out in Crest Hill at Marishka's 604 Theodore Street, to be exact. They're family-owned and operated since 1933. They have been with us since day one on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast, and they continue to stick with us through this hard time because guess what? Marishka's is doing really well despite the pandemic. That tells you how valued they are in the community, how the people that eat Marishka's love it and depend on it and uh, want to support it. So go visit them. If you've not been there before, make sure you try that poor boy. That's going to be the first thing you want to try. But the twice baked potato, the mountain of onion rings, the, the yodel burger is James's favorite. And when things open back up, They've got a great craft beer menu as well. So go, go visit our friends at Marishka's, 604 Theodore Street, marishkas.com or facebook.com slash marishkas. That's M-E-R-I-C-H-K-A-S. They're closed only on Christmas, Easter, the 4th of July, and Thanksgiving. So you're good to go with your Marishka's needs. Before the break, we were reminiscing on the 2010 Blackhawks team now let's talk about some of the games and James when I think of that 2010 team obviously I think about the series against the Philadelphia Flyers and Patrick Kane uh deking chemo team in and out of his jock to win the Stanley Cup but that Nashville series in the first round was a it was very scary <laughs> for Hawks fans it, it felt like I don't know. I I don't know if it was because it was the first time you really felt they were contenders and it didn't go as easily as a lot of people thought it would. But that series against Nashville and especially that Nashville game five, they stick out to me and always will when I look back on this dynasty era of the Blackhawks. Yeah, the Blackhawks have always had a tendency during the playoffs to kind of have that gut check moment, right? Like there's always the go down 3-1 to Detroit or you're facing elimination at the hands of the Ducks or whatever. And in this instance, the Blackhawks faced that in game five of the series at the United Center. They were tied 2-2 in the series. They were coming off a nice win in game four. You kind of thought that maybe they were going to kind of start to excuse me, lock this thing up, and then they're down 4-3 to three in the third period of the game, and then all of a sudden Marion Hosa commits the penalty, by the way, should have been ejected for that hit. I'm going to go ahead and throw that out there oh, just in case you. there's any, <clears throat> any Predator fans listening. <laughs> but uh, had that hit, you just you were like, how the hell are they going to do this? Like, you're short a guy, 
you're short marrying Hosa more significantly. And you have to like deal with all this adversity all of a sudden. And then all it took was a bad clear by the, a bad pass by the Predators and Patrick Kane cherry picking at the top of the zone. And then all of a sudden, boom, you had the Blackhawks scoring the goal with about 13 seconds left, one of the absolute best moments of the entire dynasty. And then, as if all that weren't good enough, then Marion Hosa comes out of the box and immediately scores. It was. Probably my favorite memory, non-like Stanley Cup winning moments memory out of all of their playoff runs was this game. And Patrick Kane scoring that goal in game five was just the United Center was up for grabs. And it was just like the most insane. Like, I wish I would have been there to experience that atmosphere. Well, the visual, too, of Marion Hosa after scoring the goal almost, you know, you could see as the puck's getting to him, it almost happens in slow motion. And he takes the time to lift it off the ice just a little bit. You could see his focus in that moment to make sure the shot he made was perfect, and it was. And Hosa is a guy who is an intense player, but wasn't always a big emote, emoting kind of a personality. But, man, to score that goal and then spin on his knees, pumping his fists, that to me is one of the iconic scenes in the, the Hawks dynasty for sure. Along I'm still with Rocky Wirtz awkwardly high-fiving fans. Yes, well, that's that will live forever in my mind, and not in a good way. <laughs> um, but to me, I, it still is Seabrook Game 7 over Detroit because of my long experience and hatred with the Red Wings and suffering at their hands for so many years before the Hawks got good. But I think most people you would ask, and maybe we could do this web poll on the Madhouse Podcast Twitter account, which non-cup winning memory was more memorable to you, Nashville Game 5 or Seabrook beating the Red Wings? But it's mm. a toss-up. But that Nashville series, man, that was great. And then then things really start going with Vancouver. It's the second year in a row they'd met in the playoffs. And uh, it was on again. And and I just having that, too, the whole Canucks rivalry as the background to the uh the the dynasty as well it added such a fun element to it and had the playoffs been the same then as they are now we wouldn't have had that it wouldn't happen right and and i i think that you know we talk about growing rivalries what grows rivalries is familiarity and playing each other a lot that's what happened with the hawks and canucks and uh every game they played in a regular season was meaningful obviously every playoff game was meaningful the hawks just found ways to make it as painful as possible <laughs> for the Canucks all the time. I just don't I, – I honestly don't remember. Like, they lost game one of that series. They got I have killed. no Five memories of that game. I have no memories of that game. I certainly remember the games three and four in Vancouver when Dustin Bufflin, you know, busted out the whooping stick and just, like, annihilated them. Like, just every single Blackhawks player just, like, reveled in rubbing the Canucks' faces in their collective failure. Like, I remember that. I cert- I just I don't remember game one of that series for some reason. Maybe I was drunk. I don't know. You might have been. I mean, knowing you, you were probably drunk. Yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> a big alcoholic. I need to. Uh, I guess we you should are, talk no, about that. No, you're a connoisseur. A beer connoisseur is no. What you okay, are. I I I do feel like we should say we're not going to make fun of alcoholism. We shouldn't make fun no, of that. No, we're not. But I I will also say that there was a chance I was drunk for that game. Like. I just, you know, had a lot of friends over during those series, and sometimes you are watching a boring hockey game. You just like have a couple extra beers, like whatever. Yeah, like that. Well, I mean, Vancouver. I, just, I out, legit do not remember that game at all. The Canucks were out to a five-one lead after two periods, so 
the third you probably forgot a lot about. And and then it started to get rough in the third. I remember that there was a lot of like slashing and holding and tripping and cross-checking kind of penalties going on. Um, but then the Hawks took the next three and looked like they were, you know, they were going to seal it. And then Vancouver did well in game five. I think four, one, let me look. One, two, three, four. Yeah. I think it was they game won. five they won. at the, They won two games at the United Center yeah. in that series. Well, and then the Hawks just killed them 5-1 at home to uh, eliminate them and advance to the cup final where they swept the Sharks. That was, you know, that was close. See, now we're talking about our memories of the series. That series was closer than it felt. I know the Hawks swept oh, yeah. them, but the Absolutely. games were really competitive. They won one in overtime. I mean, game and you w- could tell the Sharks were really stinking good. Well, it's amazing looking back on the Sharks because I was writing my chapter in my book about Doug Wilson, and I was editing it um, this week. San Jose has been really, really good for a really long time, and it's almost amazing that they were not able to win a Stanley Cup, but they ran into the Hawks and the Kings, and the like, all the teams that were really, really great in that era, for whatever reason, the Sharks just could not get over that hump. And when you look at those rosters, you can't really figure out why. It's yeah. not like they didn't match the star power. They had great players. It just They just weren't able to make it happen. I guess some people would point to their goaltending as a shortcoming of Benny Nabokov didn't play well in the playoffs for them sometimes, and they were never really able to solidify things there. But that team should have won a Stanley Cup. I, I believe that. But Hawks win game one, two to one. Game two, four to two. Game three, they win three, two in overtime. Who scored and the OT winner in that game? That was big buff. That was the night that my daughter was born, in fact. Aww, my so wife fun. was in labor during that game, uh, game three. And when Bufflin scored, that's what really kicked her labor like into motion. We had been there for, I think, probably 16 hours at that point. And Hope's labor just sort of stalled out, stalled out. So we're watching the game. And every now and again, she'd be like, you know, a little contraction. But then Bufflin wins the game. And for whatever reason, that's what sparked everything. And then Eddie was born early in the morning on the 22nd of May. So I'll always remember that. Then we watched the Hawks win the uh, Western Conference championship two, two days later in the hospital holding our daughter, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. And then the Blackhawks went into the Stanley Cup Finals, and we had to uh, gin up some hate for the Philadelphia Flyers. And well, they made it easy, though, with Carcillo yeah. and Pronger. and <laughs> All those, Oh, my God. Chris frickin' Pronger. That's – like, that name is just going to always, like, draw out so many bad memories for Blackhawk fans. Not because he was particularly, like, effective, but because he stole the puck and never admitted to it. <laughs> well, he was super effective, too. But th- there was oh. that moment where Bufflin laid him out in the corner. And that was you, you talk about moments in the season where you're like, that's when I knew. Like, that's when I knew they were going to win or that's whatever. That hit where Dustin Bufflin just plowed Chris Pronger into the corner. That was one of those feelings where, like, they're not going to lose. There's no way this team is going to lose now. They just had that, I don't know if you call it momentum or fire or spark or whatever. Years later... Ken Hitchcock, the coach of the St. Louis Blues, would talk about the Blackhawks and use the term resolve. They have so much resolve, and that's why they're hard to beat. That's a really good word for it, and they've had that all along, and I think a lot of that is the leadership of Jonathan Taves, which always goes noticed, but if you've noticed over the last little bit, yesterday, Jonathan Taves said it with Kevin Weeks on his Instagram. Chris Versteeg said it today on the score. 
Patrick Kane has a Michael Jordan-like intensity where he's not going to let the other team win. And there's a moment in the 2013 Cup Final where, um, what's his name, Brad Marchand says something to Kane like, you're not doing much this series. And it's just like we saw in the last dance. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, you're going to, oh, okay. All right, let's see what happens now. And then all of a sudden, Patrick Kane goes off just like Michael Jordan did. Those guys kind of refused to lose, and they had such a swagger to them. And that moment where Dustin Bufflin, who is maybe the swaggiest of all those Blackhawks, just knocks the hell out of Chris Pronger, who's bigger than him, who's headed to the Hall of Fame, who's an absolute hockey icon at the moment. That was it, man. That was the moment where it felt like, okay, this team will not be denied. And it just it goes to show you also when you look at the uh, series roundups for all these games, just how effective the Blackhawks are in these types of like, you know, critical swing game fives or closeout game sixes. Like that was like their hallmark during the Joel Quenville eras. They would get into those situations where they could potentially close an opponent out. And yeah, they had some hiccups like the Vancouver game five in 2010. But for the most part, when push came to shove, when they had lost two games in a row against the Flyers and the series was tied 2-2, two to two, when they were facing a 3-2 deficit against the Predators, like, it just it didn't matter. Like, they somehow would always be able to hit another gear in those clutch games and they would just – they'd win them. And it was so routine for them. Like, in 2013, they're tied with Boston 2-2 and you're like, are they going to win the – are they going to win game five? Like, what the hell is going to happen? And they just came out, and they just freaking did it. And they, like, just asserted their dominance, and they just always were able to do that. And, like, you, I love the term that you use, the swagger that they had. They never doubted themselves, even when they had moments like they did in the 09 series against Detroit where they just could not do anything against the Red Wings. That stuff just never deterred them. They never – shrunk from a challenge and it was so fun to watch them in that 2010 season just kind of come together and realize how good they really were and even after losing two straight games to the Flyers they came out in game five and what did they do they scored seven freaking goals and put themselves a win away from that title like just nothing seemed to bother them they were just so unflappable that entire playoff run And they gave so many amazing memories because of that swagger and just the sheer talent that they were able to put on display when they needed to the most. And that's what's always going to stick with me, I think. Well, I think I've mentioned the name once today, but not in the context we're talking now. That's where Joel Quenville gets a lot of credit, especially in the early years of the dynasty, as this team was finding out how to win in the playoffs. Quenville's leadership, his steady hand, all the things that we all love Joel Quenville for, who knows that without that, if they would have been able to handle those big moments that they've, that like you just highlighted so well, who knows that without his leadership, at least early on, if they would have been able to overcome that. You think about the influence of a coach or a manager and the calming influence those guys can have. They don't show you panic. They don't show panic in their face. And I think that's something, you know, Q, anytime the camera cuts to Joel Quenville, it's the same face, right? You don't see worry unless he's pissed at a ref. That's Unless different. he's grabbing his junk. That's about right. it. Right, but as far as like the game being out of control or out of hand or, or there's no way back in, you never saw Joel change his demeanor with the team. Again, he'd be mad about a call, whatever, and then he would move on and be the same steady face. I think the same thing could be said for Joe Madden when he was with the Cubs. It was always kind of the, the message was the same every single day, every single game. 
And and Joel, after the Hawks won the cup, said how impressed he was with how under control and how confident and how calm the Blackhawks were uh, going into that overtime at Game Six. Just saying, like I was, he I think he said the words impressed on how the guys handled overtime. They were ready to go. There was no panic. There was no worry. They were ready to go win that game. And uh, man, I th- I think it's just a perfect storm of talent, timing, hires. Everything came together for that dynasty, and uh, it all started in 2010, ten years ago today, which is it's actually kind of scary to think it was that long ago (laughs) yeah to think that we're already at this point where we had been celebrating the 10th anniversary of that season and now all of a sudden we're right we're to the end of it you know like 10 years ago today we were all just kind of like chewing on our fingernails wondering if the Blackhawks were going to be able to do it and I I will say I was confident that they could do it but I think all Chicago sports fans kind of have this inkling that you know not everything's easy and everything can possibly go wrong. And there's definitely a, the sky could easily fall at any moment vibe that goes into some of that too. And the Blackhawks just like came out and they, they got all they could handle from the flyers. Like the flyers throughout that series just would not let the Blackhawks have anything easy. And I give them all the credit in the world for how well they played in that series. But in the end, just the team with the, more talented players and the more depth ended up coming through and we all got to celebrate one of the if not the most awkward game-winning goal in Stanley Cup history and it just so (laughs) happened to end that ridiculous drought and I know we've um we've kind of talked about previously our kind of memories of that moments where I thought the ref had pointed at the nets. I watched replays of it later, realized he had not. So just because I was able to say I was the first one at the party to celebrate, (laughs) it was not for an accurate reason, but whatever. I was still first. So screw everybody else. I was, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) I'm just saying like, it was like complete bedlam after that. But like, I just, I've always found it funny that I really thought the referee was gesturing towards the nets when in reality, it looked like he was just like adjusting his shirt sleeve or something. (laughs) And it's like kind of half embarrassment, but also half like, Hey, I got to celebrate before anybody else. So is it really a bad memory? No, no, it isn't. Hey, if doc Emmerich uh, gets confused, you certainly can as well. So my memory of this game, and I've shared this story before, I just mentioned that Addie was just over two weeks old when the Hawks won the cup and, you know, obviously sleep deprived and our immune systems down. I was, I don't know if it was the flu or what, but that day I woke up and I was as sick as I've ever been in my life. Just totally zero energy. Um, I took maybe three or four showers a course of the day trying to get myself perked up enough to go into work. My boss, Mitch Rosen was like, you have to be here. You cannot miss this show. The Hawks could win the cup tonight, and you have to be on the air. He's like, I'm saying this to you as a friend. You're going to kick yourself if you miss this. I'm like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to power through it, take a shower, almost pass out in the shower before I go to work. Um, I don't remember if I drove or if I got a, whatever it was. It was all a haze. So me and Matt Abadicola are watching the game in the conference room at the score. And the, we're tasked with as soon as the game ends – you go on the air, and typically that's fine because you know when the clock's going to run out, and as soon as it hits zero, you're on. But it was overtime, so we're standing in there. We're, we're literally standing up watching overtime because we're both so stressed out. Um, the puck goes in. Me and Matt look at each other very confused, like, what the, What do we – did they just win? Did they win? So we have to wait a little bit, right? 
realize it's a goal, sprint into the studio. And I, I often uh, reference this movie scene where in old school they're going through the athletic decathlon or the academic decathlon and Will Ferrell like blacks out and delivers a speech. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and it's perfect. That that was me. I I did. It wasn't perfect by any means, but I did four or five hours that night, sick as a dog. We're talking to players on the ice, talking to John McDonough, talking to Joel Quenville. Just a surreal experience. Uh, and the show ends, and I just broke down. I just lost it, uh, physically and emotionally. And you know, seeing my wife, I wasn't able to celebrate that with her because I was at work when that had been such a part of our growing relationship. Uh, and you know, not to mention a two week old baby at home that night was so unbelievable. And I remember so little of it, you know, because I was sick, because it was so such a whirlwind situation in my life and in the game. Um, but man, I'm very fortunate that I've, I've had the chance to be on the air all three times. The Hawks have won their three most recent Stanley cups, but that 2010 cup that night, that was a blur. I went home and just watched the game again the next day. Yep. And I had like no recollection of moments in the game aside from the win. It was crazy. But I, I, I always said I would give anything for the Blackhawks to win the Stanley Cup. I said that growing up as a Hawks fan that whatever it would take for me to do it, I'll do it. So that was my sacrifice. I had the flu. I was sick. I don't remember it very vividly, but damn it, it happened. And uh, and it, it would happen two more times after that. But uh, just an unbelievable experience for the entire city. And uh, hopefully sooner than later, We'll get to celebrate another one of those things. It doesn't seem like it, but who knows? Maybe it'll be this year. Maybe the Hawks will sneak up on the Oilers. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, that would be the most insane thing ever if they somehow were able to do it. Like, I know this is, like, ridiculous. Like, there's no way in hell it's going to happen. But, God, can you imagine? Like, would this one be, like I, – I know it can't possibly be sweeter than the first one because the first one was, you know – 50 years you know your entire life you'd been waiting for this to happen and it finally did but I almost feel like this would be almost as sweet because it would be so unexpected and so chaotic and weird and especially in the time and age that we're living in did the 2015 cup seem that way to you a little bit did you did it seem I don't want to say unexpected they were a good team we knew they were a good team but I did not I think going into that season I did not think they were one of the best teams in hockey I thought they had a shot because of who they were and their experience. But sure. going into 2015, I wasn't like, this is another year the Hawks are going to win the Cup. I certainly wasn't as confident as I was in the 2013-14 season when they lost to L.A. in that seventh game. Like, that season, to me, I really thought – I was Ugh. convinced they were going to repeat. Like, and, I, I really thought they were going to. And, and then they, they came in the next season and – I just yeah, I didn't I didn't have quite the same confidence. Maybe it got kinda knocked out of me a little bit by that loss, but I I definitely was not as high. I still thought they were really good and I still thought that they were probably like in the top tier of NHL teams, but there were definitely other squads that I kinda thought were maybe a little bit ahead of them. But yeah, that I I thought that one to me kind of felt like the this is like their biggest like hurrah that they're going to have. Like they're going to have some challenges like coming up in the future, just trying to keep guys on the roster with the extensions that like Kane and Taves got. And like, you kind of like thought like this is going to be a challenge moving forward. And so I thought that like with the collection that they had, I thought they could potentially contend for one, but it, it wasn't like the other two where I thought going into the 2010 playoffs, I thought the Blackhawks were 
if not the favorite, one of like the co-favorites to win the cup. And then in 2013, when they had kind of rampaged through that short and regular oh, season, yeah. and I definitely thought they were the favorite, did not get that vibe in 2015 at all, I don't think. Well, that goes back to what we were talking about with the resolve, and that's a team that took that loss to L.A., that overtime-crushing loss in the Western Conference Final, and instead of hanging their heads and letting that be a defining loss for an organization, they said, all right, screw that. We're going to bounce back. We're going to win it next year. And they did. And, uh, man, it, it's just thinking back on this stuff, it seems like a lifetime ago, but it really wasn't. And how great this team was. You know, it's 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 just it's kind of wild to think and how fast it happened and how fleeting it was. They're still good. I still think they're, you know, they're not a playoff team this year, but if a couple things had broken different ways and some guys had stayed healthy, who hey, knows, Hey, if they right? beat Edmonton, they are a playoff team. Get used to it, man. <laughs> You're right about that. By the way, I want to tell you about our friends at Fry the Coop, frythecoop.com. This is on their website, and it's very true. It says quality is at the heart of everything we do at Fry the Coop. Nothing is ever frozen or microwaved. We bread our chicken by hand every day, the old-fashioned way. Quality matters, and if you've eaten at Fry the Coop, you know that quality is the name of the game. All right, I've told you about the Nashville hot chicken. That's everything there. I've told you about the donut fried chicken sandwich. Today, I'm going to tell you about the chicken and waffles. Yeah, that's right. Fried chicken, the waffles. Inside the waffles are little chunks of smoked bacon, spiced butter, and hot maple syrup. How, my friend, have you not visited our friends at Fry the Coop yet? Get over there, they're in Oak Lawn, they're in Elmhurst, they're in Wells Street, they're on Chicago Avenue, and uh, you can't miss them. The new new locations are coming soon, a little delayed because of the pandemic, um, but they're still coming. And Fry the Coop, another business that's with us that is thriving. Go to frythecoop.com. You can order online. You can pick up at their pickup window. Come get your happiness at Fry the Coop. It's going to do it for this episode of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Fun to reminisce on the 2010 Blackhawks on today, the 10-year anniversary of their Stanley Cup championship. Uh, James and I also want to just say thank you to all the Madhouse Podcast fans that have stuck with us uh, through all these years, through the pandemic, through no hockey for, what, almost 90 days now. We hope hockey's back soon. It feels like it could be happening soon. I know some teams are opening up their facilities this week. So that seems like a good sign, but uh, we will be here. We're not going anywhere, and we appreciate you sticking with us as well. Make sure you visit our website, madhousepod.com. Check out links to all of our sponsors. Uh, buy some Madhouse Podcast swag uh, and help us out uh, there as well. So with that, I want to thank you. Have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you next time on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast was brought to you by Triple Threat Sports, Marishka's and Crest Hill, Dr. Squatch, and by Fry the Coop.